Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. I'm Michael Adams and this is the third and final part of the Forgotten Australia episode, The Murderous Mrs. Mitchell. In 1918, Hannah Mitchell was a well-respected Richmond midwife and mother of five who'd been widowed twice, her second husband killed in action during the Battle of Passchendaele. But by the end of May that year, Mitchell had begun her rise to notoriety when she was charged in Richmond court with using an instrument on a woman named Charlotte Freeman on the 16th of March with the intention of causing a miscarriage. Truth newspaper called it what it was, alleged abortion. With Charlotte Freeman still seriously ill in hospital, the committal hearing was set for the 10th of June, when it was hoped she'd be well enough to appear and testify. Nurse Mitchell was freed on £100 bail. At the first hearing, Charlotte Freeman testified that her husband was away fighting in the war, but that she had nevertheless become pregnant. She'd gone to Nurse Mitchell, who said, Nothing but an operation will help you. My fee is £20. Charlotte Freeman said she didn't have that much money. Well, said Mitchell, I will make it £15. Charlotte Freeman was admitted to Nurse Mitchell's practice on the 15th of March. The following afternoon, she underwent an operation on the kitchen table. In pain afterwards, she was given brandy and water. When she complained again, Mitchell told her, We don't treat crying girls here. On the 19th of March, she had another operation, again on the kitchen table. After leaving Mitchell's house, Charlotte Freeman went to a convalescent hospital for two weeks and then took a city hotel room. But she wasn't getting any better 
and saw a doctor named Reed who told the court that on the 3rd of May he'd examined her and found she was suffering the effects of an incomplete abortion. Suspecting the patient was suffering the after-effects of an illegal operation, Dr. Reed informed police and on the 10th of May they arrived at Mitchell's house in Church Street, Richmond to serve a warrant. Under questioning, Mitchell denied knowing Charlotte Freeman, denied ever having met her and denied ever having performed abortions. Police took Mitchell to Charlotte Freeman's bedside. Do you know this woman? They asked her. Freeman began to cry. Questioned, she named the accused as Mrs. Mitchell and said she'd seen her six weeks ago at the Church Street house for an abortion. Now Mitchell did remember her but claimed Freeman had come to her confessing both to being in trouble and to taking drugs to induce an abortion that had then caused bleeding. Mitchell claimed Freeman stayed with her a few days, but that no abortion was performed. There was, said Freeman, and if you had done it properly, I wouldn't be here now. My word is just as good as yours, replied Mitchell. She was then arrested. This appeared to be an open and shut case. Police had a live witness who had made a positive identification of Mitchell and who had confirmed that a crime had been committed. Further, it was a reputable doctor who'd first made the complaint and who could testify that Freeman had come to him suffering what he thought were the after-effects of a partial abortion. Finally, as this wasn't a murder charge, a jury would be more likely to convict. When the case went to trial on the 29th of November 1918, with Percy Ridgway representing Hannah Mitchell, Charlotte Freeman suddenly didn't remember anything of what she'd previously told police and said under oath in the committal hearing. Now, she said she'd gone to Mitchell's house because she was run down and had a facial complaint. She said she must have been suffering a delusion if she'd said anything about an operation. Freeman tried to claim she'd been told what to say previously, then defaulted to not remembering or saying she must have imagined any events she'd described previously. She also claimed no one had told her to change her testimony and that the only explanation for what she'd said before was that she'd been mad or deluded because Nurse Mitchell had never touched her in any way, shape or form. With Charlotte Freeman stonewalling, the Crown's case collapsed and the judge had no choice but to direct the jury to acquit Hannah Mitchell. In May the following year, Charlotte Freeman would be tried for perjury but acquitted with Dr. Reed now testifying that she was neurotic and he now thought she'd suffered a natural miscarriage before he'd seen her. In the spring of 1920, Hannah Mitchell had been married to Frank Bonfilio for one year and they were now living in her Queen Anne Villa in Burnley Street, Richmond, where she still practised under the name Nurse Mitchell. But it was as Hannah Bonfilio that she was charged on the 29th of September at the city morgue with the willful murder of a 27-year-old woman named Ada Crutchett. 
Ada from Albert Park had died two weeks earlier at the women's hospital. Rosa Smith, a friend of the dead woman, told the court that Ada had said she was going to Richmond for an operation and Rosa had even given her £3.10 towards the £18 fee. Olga Andrews, one of Mitchell's employees, said on the 19th of August she'd taken Ada from the Burnley Street house to the Alfred Hospital. From there, Ada had been transferred to the women's hospital where blood poisoning set in. She'd initially said that the injuries were self-inflicted, but on the 8th of September, she made a dying declaration saying Nurse Mitchell had operated on her. Ada Crutchett died on the 14th of September, 1920. The coroner committed Mitchell to trial for willful murder. When the case went to trial on the 20th of October, 1920, Mitchell stated she had not treated Ada Crutchett and instead had taken her to the Alfred Hospital, leaving her outside. The jury deliberated for just 40 minutes before returning to hand down their verdict. Not guilty. Neither of these cases were reported in the newspapers during the Bertha Coughlin trial or even after Mitchell was acquitted of her murder. Just six months after she walked free in the 1923 Bertha Coughlin case, Hannah Mitchell was again in the city court. On the 29th of October 1923, a wealthy woman and mother of three children named Mabel Hodgkinson was admitted to the women's hospital. After doctors examined her, they contacted police. The following day, Mrs Hodgkinson admitted to detectives that she had undergone an illegal operation performed by Nurse Mitchell. In a signed statement, she said that on Monday the 22nd of October, she had gone to Mitchell's house. I can do it very cheaply, the nurse told her. It is £10 if you come in and go away the same day, and £15 if you stay. Mrs Hodgkinson described the operation, performed on a table in the bathroom with her feet resting on a chair, and how she had felt so weak she had stayed at Mitchell's house for nearly a week. Then she went to her husband's sister's house and soon after developed terrible abdominal pains. A doctor examined her and told her she needed to go to the women's hospital. Police arrived at the Burnley Street house very early on the morning of the 30th of October to interview Mitchell. Later that day, police took Mitchell to Mrs Hodgkinson's bedside, with the patient identifying her as the woman who'd performed the operation on her. Remarkably, she apologised to Mitchell, saying she didn't want to cause her any trouble. In the hospital room, a detective read Mrs. Hodgkinson's statement aloud. Mitchell replied, I have nothing to say. Asked whether the statement was true, Mitchell said, I am a sick woman. I cannot remember now. Mitchell was charged and remanded to appear in court on the 17th of November. She said she was worried about that because she was sick herself and due to undergo surgery. When asked a question about bail and whether she had property as surety, Mitchell said she had properties valued at between eight and £9,000, comprising the house in Burnley Street, two homes in St Kilda 
and another in Carlton. Her nursing business had clearly been profitable and Mitchell was granted bail. But she returned to court much earlier than expected. Early on the morning of the 1st of November, Mrs Hodgkinson died of septicemia and haemorrhage. Mitchell was now facing her third charge of murder. Due to her own pressing need for surgery, she was freed on bail of £1,500 with her solicitor, Percy Ridgway, himself offering the surety. On the 23rd of January 1924, the coroner held an inquest into the death of Mrs Hodgkinson. The dead woman's husband, Owen Hodgkinson, testified that his wife had in August or September fallen pregnant and had resolved to have an abortion because she did not want to have any more children. Though he claimed it was against his wishes and he tried to talk her out of it, he took her to Nurse Mitchell's Burnley Street house on the evening of Friday the 19th of October. There, a woman resembling the accused consulted with them and said she was willing to help Mrs Hodgkinson any night the following week. On the 22nd of October, they returned. Mitchell said the fee would be £15. In court, the coroner asked what Mr Hodgkinson understood that payment to be for. An illegal operation, he answered. Still trying to protect his own reputation, he told the court that he'd pleaded with his wife not to go through with it. But she wouldn't listen. On Tuesday the 19th of February 1924, Hannah Mitchell stood trial for the murder of Mabel Hodgkinson at Melbourne's criminal court. The Crown presented all the same evidence and witnesses as at the inquest. Mitchell's counsel, Mr Dunlop, acting under the instruction of Percy Ridgway, produced a remarkable defence witness in a woman named Ruby Davy. This friend of Mitchell swore that she'd been with the accused on the 8th of October 1923 at the races when Mitchell had an unspecified attack and had to be taken home to bed. And she had remained bedridden until just before Christmas with Ruby Davy in constant attendance, sleeping on a couch. Thus, she could swear that Mitchell had been in no shape to operate on anyone and besides... Mrs Hodgkinson had never been at the house because she would have certainly seen her. Significantly and conveniently, despite Mitchell's intense pain, Ruby Davy said she hadn't gone to see a doctor until the 22nd of October, the very day the prosecution alleged she'd been performing an operation on Mrs Hodgkinson. Asked why she hadn't come forward with this information at the inquest, Ruby Davy said she hadn't wanted to testify and hadn't thought it necessary because she believed the case was going to be thrown out. Speaking in her own defence, Hannah Mitchell said she'd never met Mr Hodgkinson and had only met his unfortunate wife for the first time at the hospital. This time, it took the jury 45 minutes to reach their verdict. Not guilty. On the 16th of September 1924, Mitchell was arrested again for performing an illegal operation, 
though this time she wasn't represented by Percy Ridgway. After information given to police by the father of a 24-year-old woman named Beryl Marino, they went to the Burnley Street house at 3am and found her in a bed. She was examined by a doctor named Booth, who removed her to her father's house for treatment. Beryl Marino made a statement identifying Mitchell as the woman who had operated on her. Mitchell, who was playing cards with friends in the kitchen of the house when police arrived, told them she had no idea who the woman was, while also claiming she was just having a rest. On Friday the 17th of October, at the hearing into the charge, a lawyer named Mr W. R. Vale suddenly jumped up in court to say he was representing Beryl Marino, even though she was a Crown witness and not charged with anything. Told as much by the magistrate and the prosecutor, Mr. Vale still interjected when Beryl was called, saying, This witness is in grave danger. Was it a threat or a genuine warning? Either way, Beryl Marino suddenly had an attack of amnesia. I went inside and Nurse Mitchell came to me, she said. I told her I was in trouble. Were you in trouble? The prosecution asked. I don't know, Marino said. She then claimed Mitchell had done nothing to her. Even so, she'd paid her £50, the equivalent of $4,000 today, because, well, she'd gone there seeking an operation, even if one hadn't been performed. Meanwhile, the lawyer Vale had left the courtroom. The prosecution asked if there were witnesses outside. There were, Beryl Marino's father and Dr. Booth. Mr. Vale was ordered to come back into the courtroom. But perhaps his work was already done because now Dr. Booth said he couldn't be sure whether the patient had suffered an accident, had a natural miscarriage or had had an abortion performed on her. A forgetful witness and a doubtful doctor? The echoes of the 1918 Charlotte Freeman case were deafening, even if inadmissible in court and not reported by the newspapers. Hannah Mitchell, meanwhile, didn't testify. Following Beryl Marino's sudden about-face, the charge against Mitchell was dropped. Outside the court, she handed out photos of herself to members of the press. When one photographer said they weren't of good enough quality for reproduction in the newspaper, she told him to come around and see her on Monday to take a suitable snap. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The photographers were out in force again six months later on Tuesday the 3rd of March 1925, when Hannah Mitchell was again in Richmond Court facing another murder charge. This time, her alleged victim was Eva Pitt, 33, of Belgrave, 
who had died on the 28th of February due to blood poisoning. At the hearing, her husband testified that his wife, who already had six children, had gone to consult Nurse Mitchell around the 21st of January. She returned to the Burnley Street house to have the operation on the 27th of January and returned home a few days later, looking pale and ill and barely able to walk. She'd said the operation had been successful but horrifying, an experience she never wanted to repeat. During the next few days, Mrs Pitt became sicker and eventually saw a doctor who sent her to hospital. Through the first few weeks of February, Mrs Pitt underwent surgery to correct the effects of the illegal operation while battling septicemia and pneumonia. On the 14th of February, with her condition worsening, she made a statement to police saying Mitchell had performed two operations on her, the first unsuccessful and the second successful. Four days later, Mitchell was taken to the hospital to face her accuser. Mrs Pitt identified her. Mitchell denied ever seeing the dying woman before, which she repeated again at the inquest. But the case would never reach trial because on the 25th of March 1925, the prosecution, having been down this road so many times, abandoned their charge against Mitchell. Hannah Mitchell had faced court on four murder charges and walked away each time. After the Eva Pitt case, Nurse Mitchell kept a low profile in the sense that while she continued her practice, if any women died, they either did so quietly or were effectively disappeared. But at the start of 1928, Mitchell was back in the spotlight in a case almost as sensational as that of Bertha Coughlin. On Boxing Day 1927, a young couple from Corowa, just across the border in New South Wales, 21-year-old dressmaker Inez Martin and 24-year-old draper's assistant George Rosser, got married at a church in the western Melbourne suburb of Essendon. But there wasn't going to be a honeymoon. Inez Rosser was already pregnant. That night, the newlyweds went to see Nurse Mitchell. Inez had been in Melbourne the week before and made the necessary arrangements. George paid Mitchell £30 and left his wife there that night, told to return the following day. George visited his new bride three times. On New Year's Day 1928, Inez's condition seemed serious to George. Mitchell reassured him she'd be fine and asked him not to tell anyone about the illegal operation. When George returned from Corowa on the afternoon of the 5th of January, Mitchell told him that he had just missed his wife, who, now fully recovered, had left just after lunchtime. George went to her parents' place. She wasn't there. He returned to Mitchell's house on the 6th of January. Have you heard anything about my wife, he asked. She told him she hadn't. If I go to the police and tell them the truth, will you get out of this trouble? He asked her. Mitchell started crying. You've been in trouble before and you've got out of it, George said. She replied, there was a lot of blackmail about that. If you go to the police and do not mention my name, if you are put to any expense, 
I will see that it will be made up to you afterwards. George went back to her the next day. There was still no word from Inez. Mitchell suggested he tell the police he hadn't seen his wife since Boxing Day and that she'd told him she was going to see a doctor whose name she didn't mention for a slight operation. Mitchell knew that as a cover story, George had told Inez's parents that she had gone to Warburton. She said if he wished, she could arrange to have a letter posted from that town to make it look like his wife was there. After this meeting, George finally told Inez's parents that she was missing. Following Mitchell's advice, he said he hadn't seen her since their wedding day and that she'd gone to see an unnamed doctor for a minor operation. George and Inez's parents spent a day searching public hospitals before he finally confessed the truth. Then he went to the police, but repeated the story that Nurse Mitchell had suggested. He went with them on a search of nursing homes and private hospitals before finally confessing to what he now said was the truth. Police swung into action. They issued a description of the missing woman, Detectives took George to the Burnley Street house, leaving him outside while they questioned Mitchell. As usual, she denied knowing Inez Rossa. Then they brought in George. She denied his story. She was not here, she said, and I know nothing about her. The young man has been here several times and made inquiries, but I told him I knew nothing of his wife's whereabouts and that she had not been to my place. The police conducted a thorough search of Mitchell's house, which turned up nothing belonging to Inez Rossa. Nevertheless, they charged Mitchell with performing an illegal operation. Dragging parts of the Yarra River near the Church Street Bridge didn't return a body. Newspapers all over Australia reported the case of The Missing Bride and that Hannah Mitchell had been charged. Mitchell, now 50 years old, appeared before a packed Richmond court on Monday the 11th of February for her committal hearing. Truth newspaper reported that a large crowd, mainly comprised of young women and girls, had jostled and fought each other all morning in the hope of getting a court seat so they could see Melbourne's most notorious woman. Though senior detective Frederick Piggott hadn't been involved in this investigation, he was leading the prosecution and his first request was for the court to be cleared because the evidence that was going to be given wasn't suitable for the ears of young girls. With the spectators gone, the committal hearing began. George Rosser repeated his evidence though he admitted misleading detectives in his initial statements and to lying to his wife's parents about her going to Warburton. Under cross-examination by Mitchell's counsel, Mr J Barnett, George Rosser said that his wife had a friend named Hillier, who was a petty officer on the HMAS Sydney, and that she had sent him a telegram before they'd travelled to Melbourne to be married. He also said Inez and this Hillier man had met in Melbourne a week before the marriage. George Rosser took flack for having misled his wife's parents and the police 
with the defence lawyer calling him a liar and perjurer and even saying his colourful tie showed how little he cared about his wife's fate. The inquest also heard from Inez's mother, who testified that George had kept her daughter's disappearance from her and then lied before finally admitting what he said had happened. Richard Hellier, Chief Petty Officer of the HMAS Sydney, testified that he'd known Inez for three years and had met up with her in Melbourne on several occasions during the week before her marriage to George. He said on their first meeting he hadn't known she was about to be married in just a few days. But once she told him, he actually helped her choose a ring. Hellier claimed they were only platonic friends, and yet under cross-examination by Mitchell's defence counsel, this didn't sound like the case at all. Did it not seem strange to you that you should be helping to pick out an engagement ring for a girl who is going to marry a rival lover? Without correcting the question, Hellier simply replied, yes. And in spite of telling you about Rossa, you arranged to meet her the following day? Yes, he replied. It also emerged that he and Inez had stayed together in an Aubrey Hotel. With the HMAS Sydney about to sail for England, this looked very much like Inez was having a final fling before she got married. Concluding for the defence, Mitchell's counsel said there was no evidence of an illegal operation and that all the prosecution had was George Ross's testimony, which in any event implicated him as an accomplice to any crime. Hannah Mitchell was committed to stand trial on the 15th of March 1928. But through the year, the trial had to be postponed because witness Richard Hellier was on duty in England. Rumours swirled that Inez wasn't dead, but that she'd fled her husband and gone to England to be with her lover. On Friday the 16th of November 1928, Hannah Mitchell wept bitterly in the Court of General Sessions before she was eventually able to utter her plea of not guilty to performing an illegal operation. Richard Hellier, as it turned out, wasn't called to give evidence, even though his absence had been given as the reason for the eight-month delay in the trial, and he was now back in Australia. Even though absent from the courtroom, he loomed large over proceedings. George Rosser was forced to admit he hadn't known his fiancée had been having an affair with her naval man. He also again had to admit misleading his wife's family and the police, which he said he'd done at Mitchell's suggestion and in order to preserve his wife's honour if she returned. Mitchell again denied ever meeting the missing woman, though she said George Rosser had called on her several times to ask if she knew where his wife was. Concluding his defence, Mr Barnett said there was no actual evidence of a crime. And he was right. Everything rested on unreliable witness George Rosser. While the defence counsel didn't go down this path because he didn't want to raise his client's past, George Rosser had made statements confirming that he knew all about Hannah Mitchell's history. Which begs the question, why send his wife to her in the first place? 
Why hadn't he been immediately suspicious, given that Mitchell telling him his wife had left was exactly what she'd allegedly done when people inquired after Bertha Coughlin? As the last person to see Inez Rossa, it seemed equally possible that, enraged by his wife's infidelity, George Rosser had killed her, knowing he could believably pin the whole thing on Melbourne's most notorious woman. This theory wasn't raised in court, and it didn't need to be, because the jury already had plenty of reasonable doubts, and it didn't take them long to find Nurse Hannah Mitchell not guilty. In one of the very few acknowledgements of how many times she had been found not guilty of serious charges, a truth writer commented, Nurse Hannah Mitchell has faced courts so often that it almost requires a statistician to keep tally of these appearances. In November 1929, Melbourne police received an anonymous letter that had been posted from Queensland. It said that the body of a woman who had died as the result of an illegal operation would be found in three bags in an abandoned coal mine in Currumburra in Gippsland. Following this lead, police found three bags of bones, including what was thought to be part of a human skull. They turned out to be the broken bones of calves. No trace of Inez Rossa was ever found. Nurse Hannah Mitchell dropped out of the newspapers after 1928. It's not known whether she continued her practice. Certainly, she didn't advertise and she didn't appear before the courts again. All that's known about her after her final acquittal is that Hannah Mitchell died in Melbourne in 1940, aged 63, no longer infamous enough to warrant an obituary. Was Hannah Mitchell Australia's most unfairly persecuted woman? The jury verdicts would support such a view, but the sheer accumulation of charges, testimony and apparent witness tampering more strongly suggests that she was one of our most prolific and unrepentant killers, even if she never set out to deliberately harm anyone other than Frank Bonfilio. Hannah Mitchell was the victim and beneficiary of a confused justice system that made criminals of abortion providers while also making their successful prosecution extremely difficult. In her testimony in the Bertha Coughlin case, Emily Tucker said that Mitchell had said to her, if there were an act of parliament dealing with these matters, there would be no trouble. That didn't happen in her lifetime or even the lifetimes of her children. In Victoria, it wasn't until a landmark case in 1969 that abortions, though technically illegal, could be deemed to have been performed lawfully if done to preserve a woman's health. Hannah Mitchell's desired act of parliament, however, wouldn't come until 2008 when a conscience vote in the Victorian Parliament passed legislation that reformed the laws to make abortion legal. 
I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you like this episode, I'd love it if you could leave a review on the podcast platform you use and don't forget to subscribe so you get every episode as soon as it's released. If you want to see photos and newspaper articles about this and other Forgotten Australia stories, go to ForgottenAustralia.com. There, you can also read a free chapter of my book, Australia's Sweetheart, about our forgotten film star, Mary Maguire. It was while researching her story that I stumbled upon the strange case of Hannah Mitchell and Mary's mother's testimony in the Bertha Coughlin case. Forgotten Australia was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land that's traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.